Welcome to season three of And The Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. I've written with hundreds of artists and writers over the years, and my favorite part of each session is the first hour when we catch up about life, the industry, politics, composition, whatever. So this is a journey of learning why people write songs, how people write songs, and most importantly, who the people are who write the songs. I'm producing this with The Great Joe London, Big Deal Music Publishing, and Mega House Music Management. If you want to listen to the songs we discuss in this podcast, follow us on our socials, find out about special events, or buy some of our merchandise, go to our website, www.andthewriteris.com. Oh, and if you enjoy And The Writer Is, please rate and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your preferred podcast listening site is. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to And The Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. Today's guest is a legend in the alternative rock world. He's not only been the frontman of an iconic ska band or A&R'd emo royalty, but he's a Grammy-nominated rock producer and a world-class multi-genre songwriter responsible for over 30-plus million albums. Since forming his band Goldfinger in 1994, which sold over 4 million records worldwide, he's worked with, just to name a few, Real Big Fish, Blink-182, Good Charlotte, Panic at the Disco, The Use, All Time Low, Red Jumpsuit Apparatus, Neon Trees, Plain White Tees, Black Veil Brides, etc., etc., etc. And that doesn't include projects like Five Seconds of Summer or Avicii. If it was your MySpace song, he probably had a hand in making it. He's an animal activist, and he is leaving the world a better place than he found it. And the writer is John Feldy Feldman. Feldy Feldman. Pick it up, pick it up. Pick it the up, ska, man. the ska reference is my favorite of all that. Pick Thank you. Up, pick it Thank up. you. Well, yeah, because, I mean, that, look... <laughs> So the first thing I wrote was, true or false, 1994 is the best year in music. <laughs> true. <laughs> and then I went through, I was like, the albums that came out, the not the albums that came out in 1994, but the bands that debuted in 94. And I know you guys didn't release your first album in 94, but the, you guys started in 94. Um, but the bands that debuted in 94, um, Biggie, Oasis, Green Day, Outkast, Weezer, Beck, Blur, Jeff Buckley, Korn, Nas, Soundgarden, Portishead, Offspring, Alice in Chains, and Lion King, which I was pretty stoked at. <laughs> Dude, I was like, Lion King. the executive producer of the soundtrack for The Lion King signed my band, Jay Rifkin. No but, way. Yeah, so there's there's a connection right there already. Yeah. Like, so you you got signed. Is that That's a strange thing for an A&R guy to have on their resume discography to then come to you and be like, hey, we're interested in your band. Dude, had I known that it would end up here because of that, I mean, I, I would have, in a million years, no one could have, I mean, I was working at a shoe store in Santa Monica, right? 
and just you know paying my bills because I had no I was 24. I mean, I can't take money from my parents. I'm an adult. No more unemployment. I'm selling shoes for a living and this guy comes in and recognized me from my old band, my metal band and I just I slipped a, my demo my demo cassette of Goldfinger into his into his uh, into a shoebox. I sold him a pair of nine and a half, uh, you know, eight hole Oxblood Doc Martens, and he signed. And he was uh, uh, Jay Rifkin's assistant, this guy Patrick McDowell, and that's how I got signed. You gave him like a, a cassette. cassette tape? I had a cassette demo tape at, on the, at the podium at the shoe store. What that's was the I, information you had on the cassette demo? It tape? was three songs. It was just my phone number. It said Goldfinger and my phone number. You know, my my my. You know, which three songs were? Do you remember? Yeah, it was um it was uh Miles Away, which is on the first album. Um the song that never made it um For Your Greed about animal rights and a song called Anything that I wrote when I was 16. Those three songs, but it was just like straight up pop punk and like a little reggae tinge. That's crazy. So when you sent that how soon after, you know, somebody hears a a demo do you get like do you get the record deal and then how do you get that album produced? Look, I mean my life experience is unlike any anyone I've ever met. Like the idea of work, of having a career started by working, you know, the get well job at the shoe store, you know, at a retail job that I met the executive producer, a non-musician that worked on The Lion King that said, I think this could be something big, you know, or whatever. Cuz at the time it was like I would when I was working the shoe store, we had one of those CD players that had um you know, eight, you could put eight yeah, and they would just keep going. And I would just put all bad religion. And so no one could tell the difference between the end of one album and the beginning of another sure. one because all their albums sound very similar. So I was in heaven. I'd have four hours of straight bad religion until one day someone figured it out and they threw all my CDs away. But, but then, you know, Dookie came out and I'd heard Kerplunk, yeah. the Green Day record. Right. And I grew up, you know, Bay Area punk rock movement. Did I mean, you, well, let's start from the beginning. Before okay. the shoe store, you are born in the Bay Area, and how do you become a musician? Let's start from the very beginning. Okay, so uh, we moved to, we moved to um, Saratoga, which is near Santa Cruz. I was in fifth grade, right? So I move up there, and I mean, I guess the first, uh, first thing, I, I was never allowed to listen to music in, in, in growing up. My, my parents were devout Catholics. They met in Catholic college. You know, my dad was the last man to get the polio virus in America. So he was in a wheelchair and he was a nuclear physicist, right? So he built the fuel that put the rocket on the moon. Smartest man I've ever met, right? So he had expectations for this guy, right? And I was... Um, I couldn't, I didn't know how to, I couldn't deal with school. Like I was super ADD. I couldn't focus on like math was like the least of my concerns. I was such a nervous, anxious, like introvert. Right. And so Star Wars soundtrack was the first album. And then someone played me Kiss, Kiss Alive 2, I think. And but you're I was, doing all this with your parents, um, behind your parents' back. Yeah, right? yeah. Because all, all they allowed me to listen to was um, musicals, right? So it was Oklahoma, Music Man, Sound of Music. You know, pretty much that was it. Which now that I'm older, I really appreciate, you know, playing for my kids. But at the time when I'm a teenager, I'm like, this right. is so fucking lame, man. No way, you know? And, uh, and so... And then I, I heard Kiss because everyone was in a Kiss. And I'm like, man, I don't get this. I don't get it. I didn't get it. It didn't connect. It didn't resonate. And then someone played me Queen and I understood that. 
I'm yeah. like, this guy can do something that I can't do, right? So Queen was the first thing that I really sunk my teeth into. And then it was The Who. And then from The Who, I think Pete Townsend's solo record, he thanked the Sex Pistols in his liner notes. And I was 12 and I read that. I'm like, who are the Sex Pistols? And I discovered them. And then that changed everything. And that's when I started playing music when I found punk rock. Where Are you listening to vinyl at the time or cassettes? All vinyl, yeah. So how are you sneaking vinyl into your house? Um, so I'm going to my best friend's house and we're just listening. You know, we're just yeah. hanging out listening. That's how, that's how we do it, right? And, yeah. And just kind of, you, know, you having the needle on the record was so, it was so easy to be able to learn how to play because you could just go back to the beginning, back to the beginning, you know, before waveforms. Cassettes were so much harder to rewind. For me, the vinyl was perfect to listen, to learn how to play bass parts because I started as a bass player to these records. You know, Buzzcocks was the first band I really learned how to play the parts. Buzzcocks and Black Flag, they had bass players that I thought were interesting. So were you playing instruments in the house and then you'd bring them to your friends or did your parents have no idea you even could play bass? Um, well, my parents, you know, my parents l loved music, but they had a very specific idea of what music should be. Right? right. And so they made me, you know, as a kid, you kind of do what your parents say as, a yeah. kid, you know, in eighth grade, they, they made me play the, the clarinet in the marching band, which definitely turned me into a, an addict later on in life for sure. Like created sure. a lot of, uh, craziness. Um, this is terrible, terrible thing for a parent to do. Make a, a, a dude play the clarinet. It's just of all the jokes <laughs> to have. It's the worst instrument ever. So I had all this stuff and I, and of course I rebelled, you know, and at some point in my life, I just said, this is what I'm doing. And I just came home with the safety pin in my ear, the dog chain around my neck. And I'm like, fuck you. What did, what did your parents, like, how, how did that, that dynamic, you know, of your dad being such a success in his career and then wanting you so bad to follow in his footsteps, and then you going in and coming back, being somebody different, Did was there a point where he recognized that you were also at the pinnacle, or that you had the potential to be great in your field? Or did he, was he like resentful of the fact that you didn't, you weren't good at math? I think all of the above, man. I think human nature is you want to be right, and you want to say, I told you so, a lot of times. And I think, you know, my dad came from a very different era. And at the time, it was so challenging because you're a teenager and you've got pimples and your first boner and you're like, what do I do with all this stuff? And my dad said, do, I mean, this is what he literally said to me. He said, we indulge in the pleasures of the flesh when you're, when you're married. That's what he said. When I'm like, what's going on? I was like 12 and I'm, what's happening to my body? And that's what he said. I'm like, fuck, how do you do? As an adult now, I go, holy shit, how do you deal with it? But conversely, I would never be here. I wouldn't have followed my dreams had I not been pushed in this negative direction to say, you're never going to succeed at music, which is what I was told. It'll never happen for you. He said you're, that He said you? that. Oh. You'll ne you're not good enough. It'll never work. All that, you know, led to me being here with you, right? Was he ever able to... Uh, I, 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 he died eight years ago. So he was able to see your success. Yes. And I became so, so much more successful than he ever was, which in the end, as a kid, you think it'll all make you feel great at some point. You go, ah, oh, then I can say, I told you so. Right. But in the end, you have kids and then you realize how fucking hard it is to be a, a parent. Yeah. It is so hard, man. You know, because everything flips around and all, everything becomes about, you know, being a good parent and raising your kids. And then you see all, then I can see all the great stuff that he gave me. 
You know, instead of as a teenager, all I saw was the negative. And, the, and now that I'm a, an adult, I go, he really sacrificed so much. I mean, I struggle with a lot of, you know, anxiety and depression and, uh, you know, self-doubt, self-pity, all that stuff. And for him to be in a wheelchair, to not be able to even throw a ball to me as a kid, he must have had so much adversity thinking, how am I as a parent? And, and him thinking he can deliver me this, you know, the brains that he had to say, I'm going to give you this, that uh, this yeah. engineering mind and that I didn't take it. He, he must've been so upset. And now I can see it. And I love, I, and my dad and I ended, I mean, we ended, I was there on, on his deathbed. It ended great, but had it not been for that adversity, I would not have pushed as hard as I did to become a musician and prove him wrong. I needed to prove him wrong when I was a kid. Were you diagnosed as ADD, anxiety disorder, you know? Oh, dude. Were the you 80- all diagnosed? But they didn't have that then. No, right? like, man. It was just like, that's what you are as a that, kid. That was it. Just like, there's something wrong. You know, what's wrong with you is yeah. what people kept saying. Like, what's, what's yeah. wrong with you? Yeah. But the thing is, like, with at least my version of ADD, whatever that is, I, I'm so hyper-focused on shit that I love. Stuff that like moves me and gives me goosebumps. Like when it came to finding a bass tone or learning how to play an instrument or writing music. That was your hyper focused. Yeah. You know, and it's almost like this that bipolar was your thing. was like the exactly. moment. Yeah, sure, of course. Because I can still go, even today at 50, I can still go two or three days without sleep when I'm real, when I know I'm on to an idea or a sound that I know I haven't heard or something that I'm excited about. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, I, I was, this is your story, not mine, but I, in high school, I was I I just couldn't read, and it was so frustrating because I I could retain a lot of words, and I had a great lexicon, and my vocabulary was extensive, and I could repeat things, and I could have a conversation, but I couldn't read, and I couldn't spell where shit. I still can't spell. I can't spell like some some basic words. Spell? And if Can it you wasn't spell, for, spell? Yeah, but you'd be surprised. There are words that are so simple that if it wasn't for auto-correcting and it wasn't for being able to look up certain words you know it would look like I wasn't particularly intelligent because I think my dyslexia was just not diagnosed and I couldn't figure that out it took me so long I had to take all these reading courses and all these things because it was like we well, can't read so take more reading courses it was like I'm taking these reading courses I don't know why I just can't like it's just not happening you're like it's just a different era when those those things happen, and now it's like it's not looked down upon on some level in the same way. And I feel like teachers are are catching that stuff earlier. Do you think if your kids came home and had their own learning disorders, do you would you how would you treat that? Yeah, my son's in a special ed school for auditory processing and the same all the same stuff, ADHD yeah. and all of it. So he's in a school with six kids, and he's like crushing. And he comes home, like he's in sixth grade, he comes home with long division. And I'm just like, how the fuck did I ever do yeah. this? I don't understand any of it, you know? And, and look, I, I, I understand, obviously going through it, when you have life experience, it's much easier to say, this is how I got through it. I just kind of, you know, manipulated my way through school to a certain extent. I got kicked out of high school, so, and yet still... I'm here because right. I was taught there was a, there's a, there's a straight line, right? Born, school, marriage, job, or yeah. whatever, death, you know, that, that line. And that's not how my life is at all. It's just like crazy ups and downs. And so when my friends' kids, I watch struggle with depression. I see these young kids on Xanax and in rehab and depression and all that stuff. I just, my heart goes out to them. I just think you don't know what the end result's going to be. Yeah. Don't give up because yeah. it's not going to be like this forever. Because if I could really place my 
my finger on the hardest years of my life. It was like 14 to 17, probably, you know? Of course. And life has challenges and wins and all of it, but that shit is so hard. Yeah. So you get kicked out of high school for what? Um, failed, like I was failing all my classes, but I was a super stoner. I was the, the, the my were, you, are you, were you at this point like, pl- you've now learned how to play bass. You're now like playing all this music. At this point, are you playing in a band at all? Or are you so yeah, like- my, my band's called Family Crisis, right. of course. And uh, so I, I, I start writing songs pretty quickly. I learned You Say Don't Love Me and Ever Fall In Love by the Buzzcocks. I learned those two songs in Six, in six Pack by Black Flag, right? So I learned these three kind of early punk songs and I start writing music and I wrote... I, I was in love with this girl um, in eighth grade and I wrote my first song about her just to try and like, you know, I was so shy, man. I was like, how do I? Do you think I? she knows? She, well, it a hundred, look, so I, st- I stole a necklace from my younger sister, this little like, I don't even know, $3 <laughs> necklace. And I put it in, a, um, in an envelope and I wrote the lyrics out, which were, um, you were just another one. I didn't know you, but I had fun. Then one day you were in my class I looked at you and then you got my ass and now I'm in love with you. That was, that, that's the chorus, right? Nice. That's my first song I ever wrote. Edgy. Edgy, super edgy, but it was like, it's like super edgy, like- Edgy, but heartfelt. Heartfelt yeah. and in- You were so already doing it. I wrote the lyrics out, <laughs> put it in this thing and put the necklace in there and she had no idea until um, we were playing some like, you know, uh, garage party and then someone said, Aaron, the song's about you. And I'm like, no. But then we hooked up and it was all good. All, it all worked out. <laughs> it all worked how, out. How old were you once when that happened? This, I was 12 or 13. So you're in a band all through high school. So when you get kicked out, you're already cool because you're in a band. So like they, it's like, it sucks for your parents, sucks for the school, kind of sucks that you get kicked out, but you're kind of stoked because you're like, fuck it, I'm in a band. Right? I mean, like you don't care that much. At kind that of, but dude, I mean, I was, I was a fucking derelict, like as derelict as you can get. I mean, I've, you know, I'm, I'm putting gelatin and egg whites in my hair for Liberty Spikes because they're, you know, Hot no Topic doesn't way. exist. So I've got my Sid chain and my combat boots and I'm just like, I'm punching holes in walls. I'm running away. I'm just drunk. I'm low. I'm, I'm a drug addict, right? Full on kicked out of the house. What drugs were you doing? Um, I mean, at the time it was this amyl nitrate was kind of going around, which the, we put on you. It's like, a, um, it's like poppers. Oh, it's like yeah, a liquid you put right. on you, you'd huff it, you know, nitrous oxide. I'm drinking, I'm doing cocaine, smoking weed every day, you know, whatever pills are laying around. I'm taking anything, acid, mushrooms, like all just the, just the basic shit that I yeah, think right. most 13 year olds do. How did you do. survive? Um, you know, seconds and inches, man. I mean, that's what they say. You know, I haven't done drugs in a long time and they say seconds and inches because I've got, um, I'd say 40% of my friends are dead, OD'd, you know? And, uh, I was just talking to Danny actually last week about, uh, we, I was in Mexico once and my friend got kid. I was blackout drunk in Tijuana and, and my friend got kidnapped with this guy named El Diablo. It's local guy, right? He's like dude, giving us cocaine. And somehow I woke up in San Diego in my apartment in, you know, trying to go to community college and I was fine in my pajamas. I didn't even know how I got home. And this guy got kidnapped. El Diablo put a gun to his head, said, you're giving me everything. If you try and run, I'll kill you. And he's in this little like hospital. El Diablo's a doctor. He's going to turn him into, he's, he, he sees all these other American kids being turned into trans, like transsexuals, like drugged up heroin addict transsexuals. He's going to prostitute my college roommate for sex in Tijuana. I escaped. This guy lost his mind. He escaped eventually, but he's never been the same. 
seconds and inches. That could have been me here talking to you with some boobs. What? Or maybe not. Or maybe who knows? Who fucking knows? Like this shit is like, you know, whatever. That's hostile easy, style. Hostile that's style. Easily the craziest story we've ever heard in one of the like in a in a podcast. Wait, so um, not to go further into your roommates becoming a transsexual from drug induced. Um, um, I don't even know how El to Diablo. describe this from El Diablo, <laughs> El Diablo the doctor dude. who actually is selling drugs. Yes, yes, and bodies. Yeah, like. Uh, how soon after you wake up in, in this apartment in pajamas do you realize that you escaped something? Do you have any recollection? No, I just thought that he was, like, still partying, still, like, you know, day two. By day yeah. four... Well, this is also an era, just to just to clear up, I mean, even when I was... Because I went to school out here, too. It's like, you would go down... You could drive down to Rosarita. You could drive down to Tijuana. Like, those things were kind of normal for people, for kids who grew up you know, in, in, in Southern California. Now you wouldn't do that as much, but at the time, like the idea of driving to Mexico and getting fucked up and then coming home was, isn't like astronomically weird. Like it, then it was like, it was kind of normal at least to drive to Mexico. Right. But yeah, but no cell phones. You're, you're, you're basically entering some no, no man's land down there. Like no law, no government, no connection with anyone back here. It's, it was really exciting, man. At the time, like you go down there and you're like, you don't know what's going to happen. You'd hear, you'd hear stories. You're like, you know, the crazy, whatever, all the donkey shows and the weird shit you hear about, you go down there and it's all like right there. And, um, actually Goldfinger is the song we just put out to you on a sunrise is about that whole weekend experience you know my friend greg he the that's way he, what that song's about i literally was right. listening to that on laurel yeah. canyon today yeah <laughs> like you know driving el diablo's here, in like, verse one yeah he's name checked no yeah. shit oh man that's gonna mean something totally but that's the thing about the writing music home. isn't it you know you have life experiences and you pull yeah. from them even today like i'll be in a room with some random like i was writing with this, this band xylo last week that are signed to the chain smokers label and, mm-hmm. and it's like you know how do you pull from that because the best songs come from real life experiences and when you when you come across an artist who is who you can see is struggling with drugs and alcohol or something like that do you find yourself in a position where you become more paternal or do you sort of say, well, that's, that's their journey. Let them go. And my job is to produce and write. Uh, probably, the, probably the most important question of all, right? I mean, what do we do? Like we're talking about the idea of the hour of talking about life. What are we going to write about? Getting to know the writer, getting to know the artist. I mean, that is yeah. the most important hour. Yeah. It, it sets up what the rest of the day becomes. And if someone's in the room, if there's a writer in the room and they're checking Facebook and they're not engaging with you or they're not talking to you and they're just kind of like waiting for you to deliver a finished whatever it is, <laughs> it, it, it's just, it never really works. There has to be that engagement. And for me, the idea of life. The bigger idea of life is so much more important than any diplomacy or politic or money or hit song or whatever. And if there's someone in the room that for sure I can tell has what I have that struggles with that same thing of that negative thinking or whatever that I can help, that is so much more important than a song that we may or may not create. And I can, and all I can, all I know is my life experiences, my, 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 biggest asset because when I share stuff about being a kid and struggling with all this stuff and I used to cut myself as a kid because I I didn't know what was happening all I know is I was failing out of school my parents did not get who I was I didn't connect with my family at all and I was like there's something there's got to be something wrong with me there has to be you know and to be able to to go through that survive come out the other side with all the self-esteem that I have knowing that I'm not a failure 
that I've, I've won in the big picture of following my dreams and succeeding, that I can pass that on to someone else is so much more valuable. So let's go. You, you wake up in your pajamas. Um, when do you start taking music seriously? The biggest challenge that I had as a kid is I loved pop music. Like I didn't get Kiss, but I totally got Duran Duran and I totally got Wham. But when I'm at a suicidal tendency show, I can't fucking be sporting my George Michael yeah. shirt. I'm gonna get fucked. I'm gonna get beaten yeah. up. So I've got to hide this love. Even the police at the time, the police are my all-time favorite band. And they were like, you know, top 40. They were a super pop band. So I couldn't go, you know, tr play Social Distortion with my homies and listen to that. So that eventually became the, the end of my, you know, I couldn't admit it. So I just became who I am, which is a writer that loves all sorts of different styles of music. And so when I figured that out, I put this band together. I moved to LA because I knew music was the only thing that really... I loved. You're and talking I, about the Electric Love Hogs, not. This is before. Electric Love yeah, Hogs. So, yeah. so we wanted to be like a band that had no boundaries, no genre. We, I mean, I love the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and I just love that they were like this punk energy, but they didn't sound. They didn't sound like Black Flag. You know, they sounded like nothing else. And I wanted to do something very, very unique. So I put this band together that ended up becoming like this kind of seminal. Like we were, we I moved here right after it was like Fishbone, Jane's Addiction, Chili Peppers were kind of running the city. But I met Maynard from Tool the day he moved here, right? So he became one of my best friends. So I had Tool <laughs> open their first show for us. Rage Against the Machine. I, Lockup used to play all the time, uh, Tom Morello's old band. So Rage Against the Machine played their second show opening for the Electric Love Hogs. Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains. All these bands opened for my band that became these legends, right? And so I, was, I watched this whole thing happen. We got signed and Tommy Lee produced us. And it was like, I've, I've made it. I made it. And then the guitar player quit. And then we got dropped. And then I went back to selling shoes. When you went back to selling shoes and you're watching these other bands become icons very quickly too, you know, were you questioning whether you're going to ever go back into music? I mean, I had like a year of like, I tried, I, I tried to be an electrician, man. It was, it was the most awful month of my life. I and mean, we were in South Central. My, um, the foreman had a gun out on the table every day. I'm climbing under apartment complexes with dead cats, rat traps, just me, you know, 120 degrees out in the summer in full coveralls with the mask on, just like connecting wires. And the I'm like- The same guy who was just- Just you know, on tour. Headlining, headlining shows. Yeah, with all of it with these legends. And they're, they're still my friends. And so I'm, and I'm, and then when that, when I knew that that wasn't for me, I wasn't built to be an electrician, you know, I went, I went back to selling shoes and, and these people would come in and I'd see- you know, because the promenade, everyone would walk around. And I'd see all these people I used to work with, and, and and they're like, "Hey, what's up, John? How's the band?" I'm like, "Oh, we we broke up. Uh, what size are you?" You know, and I'm offering these guys that I used to work with how to sell shoes, and it was like that humbling experience at the time was horrific. But in hindsight, I would never have got the humility or the gratitude to be able to say, "Holy shit, I'm never taking another day for granted doing what I love ever," because I, I had that experience. Yeah, failure is super important. It's, a, it's like the one thing our culture should do more, and we talk about that as much as we can, where it's like to encourage failure, <laughs> to somehow, to like encourage trying, trying hard enough. It's okay to fail. It just is. And if you can somehow encourage people to like, it's, that that's okay, then that's going to create people who will then keep pushing through that. But there's some, it's like there's this weird 
it's there's this weird black mark on failing, but failing's like the essential tool in actually becoming successful. Social media is such a um, such the opposite of what you just said, and I totally agree with what you just said. Like you know, having that open mindedness and willingness to be able to try new ideas when you're in a songwriting session, I wouldn't have if I was just entitled and it all just came to me. And, and I know people that it does just come to them and people that haven't had to work day jobs and that are lovely people. It's not 100% that way. But for the most part, the people that I love the most have really struggled and had a lot of failure. And when you look at, it's basically like your top 10 hits that people post on Instagram. It's like all the great stuff that always, that anything that happens to them. And so I'm comparing my life on the inside to what their life looks like on the outside. And even as a man that's living up here in a dream I could have never imagined in this lovely house, you know, doing what I love for a living. I still look at it and go, oh, I'm not doing that or I'm not working on that project today. So there's something wrong with me, yeah. you know, which is, you know, I, I deleted it for six months. I just got the fuck away, you know, just because I never had it growing up. And most of the, my favorite songs I listened to, social media didn't exist when I wrote them. And so there it's is... It's so funny because from, from afar, you know, when I think of your career, because, you know, in the, in the band circuit everyone knows who you are and you know the assumption is that 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 means that you because i know who you are that that means that your life is like you know exactly who you are also do you know what i mean like my assumption is that you feel confident in who you are because i know who you are so it's interesting that you still find yourself in a place where you where you compare and despair a little bit. Oh, of course, man. It's like I want everyone to like me, and that's what we do. I mean, our job partly as writers is to you know be a positive energy and to keep people on track. You know, when you've got a young artist in the room, that's kind of you know, diverting a little bit sideways or you're four hours into a song you know is special. You know you've got something magic. And the artist says, I don't know if it's really my thing. And to sort of how do you convince them that this is magic and that you do this and you know this is going to be great yeah. for them and you're, you're helping them, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then you watch and then online and you see um, those artists that, do, that don't understand you go work with people that maybe you, you know, mentored or other or your friends, but you, then you feel like you're not good enough and they want to work with other people. It's just, it's like high school sometimes. Totally. When you're selling shoes, are you sober at this point? Yes. Um, so what, what is the impetus at that point to say, I'm done selling shoes. I'm, I'm, it's time to start Goldfinger. And even in that, you then record it enough that it ends up on this cassette tape. So like, explain how you go from what size shoe are you to like, I'm going to slip in a cassette tape. Yeah. Well, like I like any, any writer, I think it's, it's therapy based, right? The idea of like having a sense of purpose that I have actually, that there's something that the creator made me for that I can actually do well. And I've always written music since I was 12. So I went back to, I just went back to writing. And I mean, to be totally honest, when, you know, when Dookie came out and I realized that because Bad Religion was such a big part of my life and I grew up on that band and they always were consistent and none of them had to sell shoes. They always did okay, but I never thought I could really do it in punk rock. I needed to be more experimental or whatever. And then, you know, I saw Green Day uh, at the Whiskey on the Kerplunk tour and I'm like, man, this is what I grew up on. This is what I know how to do. And I just started writing on the side. I started writing really simple, basic pop songs with distortion. And so I wrote a bunch, I, I, I kind of retooled some Family Crisis songs and then I wrote, I wrote some new ones 
And to be honest, like the pain of having to like clock in and clock out and like having the lunch break, man, I'm like, there's got to, if I'm going to stay in LA, I've got to at least try to, you know, I was 25 at the time. I'm like, it's not too late. So I made this cassette that was half of what the Electric Love Hogs version two was going to be. It was like the bass player for Weezer now, Scott Schreiner. I put a new band together. It was more like Rage Against the Machine. And then the B side of that cassette was like all these Goldfinger songs. And I sent them to Todd Sullivan, who signed Weezer. And he listened and he's like, you got to focus on this. This shit is, you are really good at this shit. And he gave me the direction. This one guy gave me direction to focus on Goldfinger. And so that's why I let go of that, the other band and I just formed. Was that hard? Oh yeah. So dude, LA's, spent... like, LA's filled with bands of people who are in the band for 10, 12 years past when they should. And they don't have the confidence to say like, I love you guys, but. I'm fucking out. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Instead, they sit through it and they're like, no, I'm never leaving my boys. And you're like, well, that became your music career. Yeah. You know? So it's super unusual for someone to find, I mean, it helped to have somebody tell you, like, who was signed Weezer to be like, you should focus on this. But how did you tell your band, yo, this isn't going to work for me? Well, one of the guys I brought to the new band, the bass player, right? Um, But conversely, like, Weezer, we were playing shows with Weezer. They were, they were nothing. They were just this guy I just met. He just signed this unknown band. And, and just like all those other bands that opened for Goldfinger, nobody knew that Tool was going to become anything or Rage was going to become anything. It was all just yeah. whatever, you know? It's just an L.A. band. Just a guy, dope. another opinion to kind of back up what I knew. In, I knew inside, you know, the shit that really works comes easy for me, you yeah. know? And the Love Hogs, we would do like these eight-minute jams with five different tempo changes and it was just like <laughs> 10 different styles of music. It was a pain in the ass to write and nobody else in the band was really writers. So it was just really difficult to finish a song. Yeah. It'd take a month to finish a song. And I'd write three Goldfinger songs in a day. It was just easy, you know? When did you write, is, is Superman the first hit or Superman is 99 was, um, Red Balloons? Superman was on the, on the second album, so... It's 99 Red Balloons is really like the... First. Well, our cover of that song was album three, right? That's so, al- okay. So here in your bedroom, what's the, what's the order of here things? in your bedroom was our first. That was here that's, bedroom, that's okay. what got me out of really selling shoes. I wrote that song in a night. Uh-huh. I work with this girl at the shoe store, and it's like just to connect the dots again. I wouldn't have been here. I wouldn't have formed Goldfinger. I wouldn't have done anything had I not been working at that job. And so when people come here that are their bands are breaking up and their lives are falling apart, and I'm like, get a fucking job, man. Right. It's the only thing that's going to give you a, se- a sense of, of self-worth is if you pay your own rent. If you're taking money from someone else, or your parents, it's like, how do you really like find out who you are unless you can find out who you are? Did you get it? So you got a deal. Once you get a deal, that's enough money for you to live on and not be a shoe salesman, correct? Well, or no. So I signed a publishing deal and a record deal. And I signed a publishing deal for $10,000 for 25 years. The, one of the worst publishing deals, I, I, he owned all the that? rights for everything. I didn't even use, I had no lawyer. I didn't know anything. I didn't know anything about the business, oh. right? But conversely, I wouldn't be here hadn't I signed that deal, right. right? So when people come to me and they're like, oh, this this or that, I'm like, if you become successful, you will renegotiate. You'll figure it out. Are you still in that deal? This is my last year. So I own all my catalog next year for Goldfinger. But had I not been there, I wouldn't have... <laughs> I know, exactly. Amazing. Yeah, thank you. Dude, I mean, that's all of... Like you said, all of us had to, at some point, sign... As I, I tell people this because I went to USC and I studied music and music industry. And, and when I graduated, I was like, oh, this is going to teach you how not to get screwed. 
but it doesn't. It teaches you how you're getting screwed. And there's nothing more valuable than knowing how you're getting screwed because somebody is giving you money or time or something for something in return. And even if it's $10,000 for 25 years of your life or whatever it is, um, there's a, a transaction that took place. And that transaction, like you said, leads you to now. So it's so important to sort of accept the fact that that you have to do these deals because you want to walk through those doors. And if you don't walk through the doors, you, you can't do anything. You know, you'll just be selling shoes. So instead, the idea of like taking that deal and taking that risk, it was still a risk, but it worked out. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So anyway, keep going. So you take this $10,000 deal. But, the, but just to speak to that for a second, a lot of times people do come here having gone to music school or reading how to yeah. succeed in the music business or whatever books yeah. or lawyers, kids yeah. and all that. And I'd say 90% of the time, nothing ever happens because they're so worried about getting screwed right. that they won't take a jump or they wait for this non-existent deal that they think exists out there. And it's even more difficult now than it's ever been because there's so much competitiveness yeah. in this business. And it's like, just have faith, man. Have faith that like there are people in the world, that there are forces in the world that are out there looking out for you. And if you do something magic and if you make something great, all that other stuff works out. The money stuff has to be second or third or 20th. If money is first, go work at Wall Street. Jonathan Daniel taught me that because I was so freaked out when I had my kid and I'm like, we got a special ed school, all this stuff. He's like, brother, go work Wall Street. If, you, if it's about money, it cannot be about money. It never was about money. Just for the record, Jonathan Daniel is, you know, a, a, a legendary manager who manages, you know, Sia, Fallout Boy, Panic, the, yeah. Panic at the Disco, like just an amazing manager. So a train, like that the list goes on and on of just the coolest dude ever. So just give him giving him a shout out for those who don't know who he is. Um so you signed the publishing deal and a record deal. Yes. Who's the record deal with? Mojo Records, a non-existent label that this guy, Jay Rifkin, started for my band. We had, you know, he basically, he, he, he went to school with Hans Zimmer. So <laughs> I, would, I would go to the studio every day. And, and if, not, if I don't know if there's a guy that influenced my work ethic more than Hans Zimmer. I would go to the studio every day at 11. He'd already have been there for two hours, right? He has this crazy synth room that's just like all these analog synths with probably a thousand cables plugging in. I'm like, how? I didn't understand anything, man. But I knew he was there for two hours before I got there. I'd, I'd leave the studio at two in the morning, right? So I'd work a 
15, 16 hour day and he'd be there two hours after I left because I'd hit him up the next day. Yeah. Big Hans, when'd you leave? He'd go, oh, I left at five. Then he'd be there again at nine the next morning. And I'm like, holy shit, this is what it takes to really... And he wasn't, he'd only done The Lion King and a few others, but he wasn't the legend that he is now back in 1994 when I was making my first album. He was just a, a composer, but he had this great studio that we, got, we, were able, we were able to use. And no one knew how to produce records, so I had to fumble around the desk and produce the first Goldfinger record. Do you record. still keep in touch with him? I see Hans probably twice a year, and it's like it's great because what an what an unusual like uh, friendship. Yes. you know to think that you two are very are close. Yes. Is, is super unique. Yeah, <laughs> but but he was awesome. really growing. I mean, he put the time in to become the man that he is now. I watched him do it back then, but I also watched him lose a marriage and you know like all the stuff that he had to sacrifice in order to focus on his career, which is challenging for all of us, like trying to figure it out. But at the time, I didn't know anything. All I did was like, I'd, I'd have like a high pass filter and I would just like listen to a vocal to see what it did because nobody knew what they were doing. I just had access to this massive studio that I produced the first Goldfinger record. And within, literally within three weeks of making the record, we were on K-Rock 43 times a week. They added here in your bedroom, K-Rock did. And it changed everything for did me. Did you question... Um having another person produce Goldfinger? Or were you like, oh, no, 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 I write and I produce the band. I mean, you don't even think of it. You're just recording the band, right? Well, I mean, I had or like Or were a, you like, oh, yeah, I'm also a producer. And I'm, I mean, did you know what you were doing? You're I, engineering, producer, you're doing the whole thing. I mean, to be totally honest, I didn't really know, because I, Tommy Lee, when he produced the Electric Love Hogs, he would come in the studio and within like five minutes, he'd be like lighting his farts. And like, we would just be like laughing hysterically. And he would just tell stories about the heyday of Motley Crue and all just the women and the celebrities and the actresses. And that was most of his job as a producer, which to be honest, is a great producer to be able to get you in the mood to create music and to kind of like lighten it up. Mm -hmm. And all that stuff. But I didn't really understand what a producer did. I saw engineers messing with knobs and equipment. But, you know, I just recorded my own demos on a 12-track Akai that had like a beta cassette that I have to clean the heads and stuff. And I kind of learned there. But I really learned making the first Goldfinger record because no one else could do it. On that same label, that's R Real Big Fish's label Yeah, too, so right? I found Real Big Fish. Really, there was like this movement that was happening, the ska punk the ska movement, thing, yeah. right? Operation Ivy existed, and I knew about them because of Green yeah. Day in the Bay Area, but they kind of came and went within a year or two. They yeah. were really, but they kind of created this ska punk sound. And so there was less than Jake, Real Big Fish. There was us. There was no doubt. There was um, the Skeletons, Save, Buck Save 09, Ferris. Save Ferris. <laughs> All these so bands yeah. that toured together, like in the mid-90s, like that kind of created the Southern California ska punk thing. And we were all, we all kind of came up together. So I went to go see the Skeletones at the barn in, in Riverside and Real Big Fish were opening. I'd never heard of them. The uh, trumpet player was 15 years old and they played Sell Out, which was this, you know, their so big good, hit. Yeah. <laughs> they played it last in their set. And I was like, holy shit, this is a, this is a real song. I didn't know about Hit or Smash. I just like, I love that song is what I thought. I mean, that's a... I mean, I don't, I guess I don't understand charts from when I didn't follow them, you know, because I yeah. was, I was in high school during all that, but that sellout must have been a massive record because if I knew it, then that means that it crossed over. Only in hindsight, dude, like I didn't, why would I care about charts or money? I just wanted to like tour. That's all I cared about was playing yeah. shows. It's all I cared about. How soon after you heard your song on the radio, which K-Rock in the mid-90s is the biggest station in L.A. 
It's the biggest station in the world, man. Every like alternative station at the time followed their format. They would add songs, their their playlist, and then every other, most other stations would follow what they added. So we were added to K-Rock within two weeks. Every other station in the country was playing here in your bedroom. So we'd be on tour, turn on the radio, we'd land in the airport, our song would be on and be like, this is incredible how quick it happened. That's insane. How soon were you touring? I mean, I started touring when we put the band together, but I mean, we did, I think it's still a world's record for 385 shows in 1996 we played. We would do like matinees during the day for all ages and we play 18 and up at night. We do radio shows. We played a show almost every day except Christmas Day and Thanksgiving Day in 1996. So we who's, really... Who's booking all this stuff? Um, like were you, you had an agent yeah, yeah, yeah. and all that stuff. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. Ken like from English has been our booking agent since, since the beginning. And I didn't know. I just knew I didn't want to go back to selling shoes. I knew I did not want to do that. So I Which just is said, why you do 300 and something shows I said yes. a year because you're like, yeah, of course. I said yes to everything. No voice, voice or no, just get a steroid shot in my vocal cords, whatever it took. That's what I'm I was going gonna to ask. Play. Like, how did your voice hold up? Well, look, I mean, at this point I've had four surgeries on my knees, a hurt, you know, two herniated discs in my neck. I mean, I've really, I mean, we're, we're not like a kind of stand there, you know, chill band. We're like a high energy band. And so I, I would go off every single show, but I'm 25. I didn't really, I just, you know, I, I recovered. Were you sober during the tour? A whole time, man. I couldn't imagine like going back to El Diablo, brother, with the life that I have. I mean, that's the thing is I have no desire to go back to that. There's no, there's no numbing the pain of being the failure when I'm not a failure. How long, I mean, obviously I can see your discography, but internally, how long was it from being like, you know what, I'm the front man of a band that's killing it to being like, I really want to focus in a way primarily on producing. When did you start making the jump to it's a, it's about other people's careers as much as it is about mine? Well, I love that you guys are like Chicago-ish. I mean, Chicago is where, where my production career really started. I knew, I knew what I had to do for the first two Goldfinger albums because no one else really took the reins. But I didn't want to live in the studio, man. I wanted to be on the road and I want to be playing songs that I wrote in, in my bedroom on my own to be able to have people sing along to words that I wrote. Because the idea of co-writing back then didn't exist. I had no idea. And I'm sure it happened with Madonna or... But not in that genre. Celine Dion or whatever, <laughs> right. like shit that I didn't give a shit about. I didn't care about that kind of music. I just cared about what I did and my, the songs that I wrote. And I wrote 100% of the music that I played, you know? And that was part of what it was. It was like this pride of like, I am the songwriter, right? And so Fireside Bowl, this band Show Off from Chicago opened for us. And I'm like, wow, these kids are really cool. Um... They just had like, I don't know, the singer just, he sounded like Frank Sinatra or something, but it was a pop punk band, but he had a really cool voice, gave me their demo cassette and I had listened on my Walkman on the, on the flight back from Chicago. And I'm like, I, I know, even with my little knowledge of producing, I can make this sound better. I knew it. So I, ta- I took him to my manager, John Reese, and we got him, you know, I did three song demo. I flew him to LA and I got him signed to Maverick Records with Guy O'Siri. So that was the first thing that I'm like, wow, maybe there is more. I didn't know... I had no idea I wanted to be a producer. I just thought I wanted to be a rock star and, and tour the world my whole life. And then this kind of came along. And the feeling I got watching these kids come from the suburbs of Chicago to LA for the first time and all wide-eyed and stoked and grateful. And they were like, thank you, thank you for doing this, believing in our band, getting them a record deal, taking them on tour. Because at the time we were playing in front of, you know, three to 5,000 kids a night, my band. We could take any band on the road and have, we were like a incubator for these bands. Do you question whether like are you are you happy with that choice 
the choice of being because you were saying like you, had, you you thought of yourself as you know being a rock star around the world and then when you start focusing on other things like that and you're creating all these rock stars around the world you know but that must pull from obviously it pulls from goldfinger because you can't possibly do everything. I think the guys you know, in my band, tour. guys in my band, were not as excited as I was about yeah. finding this other side to me, you know. But even then, when I was, I signed them, I signed Mest, and then I found this band, The Used, were the third band, which changed everything for me. Um, but I wasn't writing with them. I was why, just. Why producing. did that change everything for you? I the, mean, obviously they're just they got just so big. Well, it's just the thing with the Used is nothing existed prior to that that was really doing what they were doing. I mean, Refused existed and Poison the Well existed that were just straight up post hardcore like screaming kind of electronic music but nobody had those Michael Jackson choruses where Burt would just sing like nobody could sing like him in those kind of post-punk bands you know nobody and so they came out and it just, it's reshaped everything and even if you go to Warp Tour which is the last year unfortunately this year but most of the bands still sound like that. Whatever that screamo, you know, metalcore thing that the used created still exists 15, 18 years later. So Bert found My Chemical Romance. He became really good friends with Gerard Way. We signed them to Warner Brothers after I signed the used to Warner Brothers. And it just that everything on radio was that sound. And all these bands came from that movement. It's so crazy that like here's this. It, it still comes from like a shoe salesman. Do you know what I mean? Like when it comes, I was down, a, I was a terrible fucking shoe but, salesman. But like man. it's so it's it's just it's amazing because you you think you know just perspective wise, it's like it's still a human who's like, oh, I really like this band. I really like this band. Who likes this band? Who likes this band? And you start putting together a scene, and you're like, kind of like the linchpin in this movement that ends up. I mean, I my Chemical Romance was on K Rock yesterday. Yeah, you know, it's like these songs that are. <laughs> 10 years old, 15 years old, they're still getting like significant radio play. And that's this fucking seven minute song. You know, that's getting well, like Steve Jobs says, you can only connect the dots looking backwards. You can only see how you got to this point by saying this point led to this point led to this point. No one has a crystal ball. All I can do is I follow like, you know, when you're in a session and you get those goosebumps when that lyric comes together, that melody comes together and you know, you've got something special. That's the same thing. I heard Bert's Bert's voice on that cassette that he left on my tour bus when we played Salt Lake City. And I knew the songs weren't, the arrangements were terrible. There wasn't really hooks or anything, but I knew that his voice was so unique that I could help. I just knew I could help. And it wasn't like I was writing with them. Like Taste of Ink, which is one of the seminal songs in my career in general, they just had the verse and like a riff. And I just kept pushing them. We need a chorus. We need a chorus. And then like four hours later, they came with the chorus. And I was like, you, you've got it. Yeah. There are a few projects that kind of stick out as being outliers as far as the, you know, Avicii, Five Seconds of Summer, Hilary Duff, Ashley Simpson, some of these things that are more pop-leaning. Is there a part of you that that wanted, wants to branch out of the rock world? Or is it sort of like, nah, this feels like a fun thing to do right now? Or is it, I mean, what inspires you to go outside of, you know, The Used and My Chemical Romance are that entire genre like they're the icons of that genre and then to go and do stuff like five seconds of summer which is you know more rock leaning but avici and you know hillary and all that stuff why yeah. why why do that also well 
I mean, each one of these has has its own story. But at the time, I was still really focused on on touring and being in a band. I mean, that was always like the incubator for all these bands was taking the used on tour with Goldfinger to, to have them cut their teeth playing in front of 3,000 kids a night and to be able to get heckled and to be able to learn how to tour because being heckled is such a big part of, like we opened for the Sex Pistols was our first real big tour in 1996, right? So we did seven months with the Sex Pistols where I would just like, the first show in Australia, first time I ever went to Australia in Brisbane, you know, the first show, this guy filled up his uh, bottle of beer with piss. Song one just co- like throws it on me. I'm covered in piss, song one. And, and like having to stand my ground and say, you know what? You can fucking piss on me. I'm not going anywhere. And I can heckle them right back, you know, because they're all, all these Sex Pistols fans are now like in their 40s and we're, you know, these 20-year-old kids playing music and learn how to stand my ground no matter what. It was such a big part of my life to be able to allow my bands to do that. So by the time... Like I was working with Good Charlotte, um, Joel at the time was dating Hillary Duff, you know, years and years ago, and so that's how I met her. And she was the first kind of artist I worked with that was left of the rock scene. You know, we wrote um, uh, the beat of my heart and the song "Wake Up," which became, you know, "Wake Up" became one of her biggest, you know, songs ever. You know, and I wrote it with uh, with Benji and Joel, and that kind of opened the door. And because of that, I met, you know, I met Mandy Moore. I worked with her, and and I worked with Ashley Simpson because of that, like little period. I was kind of dabbling into pop music. I met Clive Davis right afterwards. I, I met at his um, Bel Air bungalow, and he, we had a four hour meeting with Clive Davis, season one of American Idol when he was starting American Idol. And he's like, "I want you to write all the music for American Idol to me, you know, out, just based on this little bit of pop music I was writing with these artists." And at the time, I wasn't ready, man. I was like, "Cause I just signed, you know, the Used, My Chemical Romance were blowing up," and I was like, at that time in music. You couldn't really be taken, I, I believed in my heart, I couldn't be taken serious as a, you know, credible alternative writer, producer, whatever I was doing, if I was going to be doing uh, a game show, which is what it felt like at the time, which I guess it kind of is. So I, I said no. And, you know, I'm, whether it was right, a right or wrong decision at the time. But that's what's so unique with your, that's why I was asking. It's like, you are, you're still, you've always been known as like the credible guy in this. And then I look and and I, I, I like Hillary. I know all these people. They're all really nice people and they're all very talented. It's just, they're sort of outliers in it, you know, but I love that. No, it's, it doesn't feel like these other bands since or during ever gave a shit that you were like on the side. Like, no, I also do some pop stuff. Well, I mean, there was a little pushback. People would kind of like joke about it, whatever, like that I was dealing with, you know, pop artists or whatever. But the truth is, for the most part, I've always said yes. You know, at the the time I had some guidance. It would have been a full-time job if I was going to write music for a TV show. And I wasn't ready to stop touring and stop signing bands. I had an A&R position at at, at Maverick at the time. But pretty much I said, I say yes to everything. And I signed this band, Beartooth, which are like, probably like the biggest new like metal band, you know, in the genre. When I was working with Red Bull, I signed them to Red Bull. And because of my relationship with the singer, he introduced me to, um, you know, to Tyler, who became the singer for 21 Pilots. And had I not worked with Caleb from Beartooth, I wouldn't have met Tyler. So I was like early on, I, co- had, I was able to collab with 21 Pilots way back in the day, met Josh Dunn, who's now, you know, one of my best friends in the world and was like really part of like the beginning stages of that band. But had I not been with this metal, metal, like double kick, shreddy metal band, I wouldn't have met 21 Pilots, who I don't know for all intents and purposes are the biggest, you know, alternative band out there i've got it you know it's just you never know what's going to lead to what you just don't know of course 
I like that the same guy who's saying yes to every show, so you wouldn't have to go, you know, to, to play is the same guy who's still saying yes to every project that you want to do now. I mean, to say no to uh, American Idol is, is like the first time that it seems like in the story where you're like, that's just too much. Well, yeah, I I, just, I would have had to given up on my in my dream, and I th- and I think I had come so far from, you know, really overcoming, you know, a failed family life, a failed school life, a failed career, you know, to be able to come all this way to say I'm going to let go of, I'd have to let go of all the bands. I wouldn't have been able to produce the used second album or their third record, I, and and that was the, that was the debate that I had to have sure. with myself, you know, to do. Um, in. Recently, in 2016, you produced the Blink-182 album, which not only was the number one album on Billboard, you know, but it also got you a Grammy nomination. That, for you, was that a moment of validation, or was it like, I mean, I've been doing this for 20 years, so or 25 years, so, you know, this is just another thing that's kind of surprising. Like, I'm sur- I'm in a way, I'm sort of surprised that that's the album that gets you the Grammy nomination. No, I, I hear that. I, I, I'm so proud of that record. So I'm, to be honest, I wasn't, I wasn't as surprised just because I kind of watched the behind the scenes politics of how Grammys work, which I had no idea. You know, I, I never really paid attention because I never did this for accolades or awards or money. This was always from you know passion here, but. Social media is such a dichotomy of the idea of, you know, being pulled down by what you think other people's successes are or Travis Barker, who I hadn't talked to since, you know, the Aquabats opened for Goldfinger and, and tra- I'd always let Travis ride on our bus because he's the greatest drummer ever to have lived. And I, I, when they had opened for Goldfinger, I'd look at our drummer and go, dude, can you watch this guy? And he'd be like, oh, he's all right, whatever, you know. And so we became really good friends then. And then he, he joined Blink and we kind of lost touch. But he hit me on Twitter randomly he's like hey it's travis can you meet up at my restaurant tomorrow you know i was just in the middle of five seconds of summer second album I'm like of course so i went to crossroads and and his whole band was there before they opened it was you know skiba and, and hoppus and we just sat down and just talked i went to the studio I listened to all the demos that they had done and i just told them my honest opinion i didn't like try and pander to what i thought they wanted to hear i just told them what i thought i told them what my idea would be to have have them really make a record that would matter you know i told them the truth and sometimes it doesn't work for artists. Sometimes artists need to be pandered to to get the job or whatever. But I told them the truth, and it really, it worked out amazing for every for all of Are us. Are there any artists that you would pander to to get a job? Um, I don't think I, I feel would. Like that doesn't seem like your personality. No, to not me. That. But I guess what I mean is, I watch other people. I watch yeah. other people that are better at the politics and the di- diplomacy than I am. I'm terrible, dude. I, I could never be a manager because I fucking, I, I try and tell the truth, and my truth may not be the absolute truth, but I have to at least say. I don't want to hear from a band that's broken down in Omaha at three in the morning because their tire blew. You can fucking fix your own tire. I could never be a manager because I'm too, I'm too gnarly, you know? This era, it feels like rock music is really struggling. Certainly at, you know, rock radio is, is really struggling. And K-Rock is playing all the songs that we listened to primarily from 20 years ago, including your own band still like on a regular basis, as much as they're playing anything new, like does, does this, does it scare you? I mean, just when everyone says like, you know, this is the famous thing. Everyone's like, whenever somebody says rock is dead, a new band comes in out of nowhere and just blows it up. And on some level, like 21 pilots last year was like fucking exciting, you know? Cause that was like someone that was, 
crossing over and really changing it. I know there are Portugal demands and there are a bunch of bands that do their crossover once in a while. But do you think there's going to be a resurgence in rock music? I mean, I don't think, yeah, I don't, I don't know if rock music will be the same. It'll never be the same sound because even when I heard, you know, Nirvana, it wasn't really like Great White or Cinderella or Bon Jovi. It was a very, it'll be something new. Yeah. But, but, but then it was like, they would recreate like Nirvana listened to the replacements where, you know, Cinderella listened to Aerosmith, but it was still guitars and drums. And now it's just, you know, people are really experimenting. I I work with that with Kimbra, right. And, and she, she did with her iPad pad stuff. I, I, I couldn't even imagine with looping vocal looping and stuff that she did. I was like, I would never think to do this as a producer that she came in it from a different angle. And I feel like artists now have the ability to recreate what that sound is. And, you know, people are saying, you know, like um, this kind of emo hip hop, like little peep was sort of leading, leading the way that there's a bunch of artists now getting signed in that. Maybe that'll be it. I mean, I think Nothing Nowhere is great. Pete Wentz's band. I think there's, there's artists that are doing something genre changing, but it's hard to say until something connects. Because even when I, I saw 21 Pilots back in the day, I was like, this is really great, but no one really knows until you know. Like even working with Five Seconds of Summer in the very beginning, I couldn't have imagined Nick two nights sold out at the, at the forum a couple of years ago. These, you know, these kids that were in a van in Australia that it would turn into that. No one knows until you know. And all I can do is song is king. I know that in my heart. And if I feel those goosebumps or if I am in a session and a song brings me to tears, if I can cry, I know that the world can cry and the world can feel that same thing that I feel in a session. And that has to be the most important thing. And I try and add my two cents as a producer, but ultimately if the artist isn't driving the vision or driving what the, um, the whole concept is, it doesn't usually work out. The artist has to be really engaged with what the concept or vision is. Absolutely. Um, one thing that I wanted to talk about is that you're, um, speaking of being like an emotional and in-touch person, you're a a very vocal activist for animal rights and you have pets around the house and whatnot. And I just thought like maybe that's something that you wanted to talk about because you've always been open about that. Um, how does being an animal rights activist change who you are as uh, as a musician as a family man i mean that seems to be something that you speak about a lot so i just wanted to hear your thoughts on it well look i think in the end what we do with how many fucking songwriters and musicians are in LA now and what people are doing for a living like the idea of following your passion is what got me here and I'm doing something that I love and that I can't not think about I'm waking up at three in the morning thinking about how to make a um, how to make a hi-hat sound better or how to make a melody better or, or how to tweak a lyric to make it better that's what I think of when I'm sleeping right and so with animal rights it just became this thing where just a connection happened for me with you know um that movie babe uh, that pig movie the talking pig movie i'm like if they i just thought if they could train a pig the way they train a dog you know why do i eat one and pet another and 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 for me it just became something i just didn't realize where food came from or any of that stuff and i just became you know a a real passion passion project for me so i go to protests on the road i would stand outside of kentucky fried chicken with a bullhorn and it was like I was gnarly and it became like PETA came to all of our shows. And so we would table, we would do flyers and, and I would just talk about animal rights. And I wrote the song, you know, fuck Ted Nugent. I saw this thing about him, <laughs> like just how, how the avid hunter and NRA guy that he is. And I was like, and I just wrote the song. And then he ended up talking about my 
song on his Behind the Music on VH1. So I'm like, people are listening. People are, and, and there was a few moments where we played Detroit and I'd play Fuck Dead Nugent in Detroit where I was thinking, someone's going to shoot me with a bow and arrow at this show. This is going to be the end of my life at this show, you know? But I knew that I was doing something that meant, you know, it, I, whether or not right or wrong, I just knew it was something that mattered to me and I needed, I needed, to, have a, um, I needed to have a voice for, for animals that couldn't speak up for themselves and it became a, a big deal and I, I wrote a whole Open Your Eyes Goldfinger album I wrote about it and back in the day, man, before I had kids, it's like I used to, any artist would come by and make them watch Slaughterhouse footage before we would work. I would, you know, I remember I made Ashley Simpson watch the Slaughterhouse footage before our <laughs> session, which kind of kind of made the session a little bit, a little unique. But, um, you know, I was really, we got, you know, dude, I was so into it. At one point, my house got raided by the FBI because they thought we were, you know, doing this animal liberation front activity. They thought we were like... Um, yeah, the the the, uh, the guy that ran all the shelters in um in Los Angeles had been his house had been spray painted because they were, you know, this one shelter was killing ten thousand dogs a month. So someone spray painted "Puppy Killer," but he was a government official after nine eleven. They thought we had done it. Someone had you know said that we had done it. So we had fucking helicopters, machine guns. That we came back from the gym, my wife and I, because the house was spray painted because it was a terrorist act. You know, the Ashcroft, all this stuff was happening wow. at the time, 9-11. So they considered it a terrorist act because he was a government official. So they thought we had done it. They had, they probably spent $100,000 raiding our house with a battering ram and helicopters and the FBI bulletproof. And we just got back from the gym and I'm like this dude in Goldfinger. And they're like, you know, it was crazy looking for spray paint. So... And to be honest, you know, I mean, we sued, we sued the, um, the police department and won, donated all the money to animal rights, but it was really like, it was one of those moments in my life. I'm like, wow, this is real. You know, this shit is real. Like if I'm going to be an activist, I've got to be able to risk my freedom. Do you know who spray painted the house? First rule of fight club, right? Yeah. Right. (laughs) Do you know how much money did you guys win and then donate? Um, 20 grand. This is the second craziest story that I think we've heard on this podcast. I, yeah, I've lived a lot of lives, man. Do you think when all this is done, maybe maybe we're a generation that doesn't retire from music. I don't know. But do you, do you think when all this is done that you're going to be focused on things like politics? No, no way, man. I just I can't imagine the stress. I just watch Homeland on TV. Yeah. <laughs> God, yeah. Carrie Matheson, man, she's yeah. so stressed. It's not even a real person. Yeah, right. I, I get stressed watching it. I just um, in my heart of hearts, I'm I'm like I, I just uh, I love music, man. I love writing music. I love producing music. I love the next day. I wake up after I've kind of finished a rough mix and I'm on the elliptical the next morning. I just like there's nothing else. I'm not thinking about like getting my. I'm not thinking about anything other than that song in my headphones. Even on stage, like there's nothing else that matters. I'm right here in the moment. That's awesome. Okay, so I'm going to go to the next segment, which is I'm going to name five things, and you just tell me the first thing that comes to your head. People, that is. Because of your discography, we're just going to, we got to go and just name some people that I want to know about. Brendan Urie. Atheist. Oh, that's interesting. Guy's voice is bananas. For somebody who grew up listening to Queen... To then work with Panic at the Disco must have been... Arguably the most fun. talented person. I'm, I'm Him and Patrick Stump may be tied for two of the most talented people I've ever worked with, not to negate anyone else I've worked with, but holy shit, Brendan. Yeah. We did this, we, we wrote this song um, on that third record, Panic record, uh, Calendar, like, yeah, yeah, put another X on the calendar. Um, and we just decided late night to do a, like a metal version of it. 
and he just played every instrument within like an hour. And he had the, he has the craziest scream, like metal scream I have ever heard. And I've worked with some radical metal artists, but he just went in there. But then three days later, he still couldn't talk. <laughs> but right. it was like, he went in there and delivered the raddest version of this like Panic! The Disco song ever. I mean, and his voice, holy shit, man. It's like, he's more in tune than if you like perfectly tuned it with Melodyne. I mean, he's like got this perfect pitch. But we would have these debates about meaning of life every day. He'd come in, we'd play ping pong. He'd crush me at ping pong. And then we'd talk about God and the existence of life. And he was just like this, he's, at the time, maybe things have changed, but at the time he was this devout atheist. And we would get in these debates about why we're here. Interesting. Mark Hoppus. Smartest guy I've ever met. Besides my dad, maybe. You know, he would come here with books, man. When we were writing that record, he would come here with like books with like, like high, like highlight, highlight. I can't, that's how smart I am. Highlight, highlighted (laughs) the fucking sections. Like I want to take this off from these books from the 1800s about like how they built the, um, the water, waterways in, in London. It was like these things is I want to write a song about this. So he would push me as a writer to really think outside of my normal thing. Because a lot of times, like we talked about earlier, I would tap into some, old girl, ex-girlfriend or, you know, first love or whatever and write about that. But he was like, we're going to write about this today, but we have to make it palatable for, sure, you know, our fans. Amazing. Especially when you think about how concise their lyrics are and their melodies are for them to be able to talk about things that have that kind of depth takes like a crazy amount of editing. Yeah, Mark, Mark's one of those guys, He's he is, I mean, a living legend, no matter how you break it down. I mean, Blink changed the whole genre of what punk rock is. And, you know, for me, to, and I've met him in the past, but I didn't get to know him until this record. And for me to be allowed to kind of offer ideas, so, you know, sonic melodies or any kind of concepts to a guy like that was such a honor to have that and to have him be so open-minded to collaborate on a lot of his but he would always in the end kind of if i had a lyric idea he'd make it he would make it so much better uh bert from the used in family that guy's my family man i mean he is uh probably the most passionate man i had have ever met i mean when we were doing that first record I mean, he told me stories about growing up and, you know, we, we all have adversity. Everyone alive has adversity and trauma and weird shit. Everyone's got problems. But this guy told me shit that I'd never heard from anybody in my life that he had to go through as a little kid. And he would put into every vocal. I had this vintage C12 that is one of 400 microphones that still exist in the, in the world from, you know, World War II. And I had this microphone and he had a trash can by him. So every, every song he would sing so hard that he would throw up at some point in the performance. He would vomit into this trash can and then continue to sing. And like, Throwing up is the worst thing ever. I've ever had it. I mean, I hate throwing up more than anything. And I'm like, and he would continue to work and push through. And this guy has more passion than anyone, anyone I've ever met about his music and about everything. And now he's like this, um, now he's, he's super political. And, and, and so we get in these, these debates about, you know, life and all that stuff too. But man, this guy, he put more into every vocal performance than anyone I've, I've ever met. All time low. You know, focused career driven. I mean, Alex is like, he knows what he wants. You know, I would come up with an idea and immediately, like a lot of artists sometimes take time to figure out if it's going to work for their band. Alex, that guy delivers vocals like a machine. I mean, he can, he's one of those singers who can just go eight hours straight 
and just sing, sing, sing in same tone, not lose any of the rasp, none of it, you know? And I come in with an idea and he would immediately say, it's too poppy or it's, uh, you know, too rock or too emo or whatever. He would be able to kind of, you know, take it and make it his own more than maybe any other artist I've worked with. He really knows what he wants. And he's like a, I don't know, he's just like a dude that you want to just go hang out with and have coffee and give him a hug, you know? He's just like a huggable guy. Goldfinger. Uh, insomnia, man. That that this that project definitely took everything out of me, man. I mean, it was my whole life. Seven albums. Seven albums in twenty years of my life of like, you know, touring and physical therapy and surgeries and like, you know, figuring out. I'm I'm still like I can't let it go, man. I'm doing slam the slam dunk festival next month. We're putting a, Travis and I are doing this festival in Orange Scott Festival next month, and it's like I'm, I'm making sure Goldfinger's like you know next to headliner, and it's like it's still this thing that I feel like. I can't let go of, you Why? know, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it is just the idea of like physically being in touch with other music fans to talk about what music they're listening to. Maybe to find the next artists I can work with that are going to be opening for us that I've never heard of, or just being able to be in the moment because most of my life, holy shit, the older I get, the harder it is for me not to worry about my kid's future or regret some decision, business decision I made last week, you know? It's one of the only things in my life that allows me to be right here, right now where nothing else matters. The way that my creator designed me, which is to live right here, I'm trying to, you know, I'm meditating, I'm working out, I'm paleo, I'm doing all this weird shit to try and get here, but on stage with my band, I don't have to do it. It's no effort. It's effortless to be in the moment. Um, it's f funny you say the thing about making sure that you can let bands open for you and whatnot. Because being in, in, I was a career opening artist. I opened for all these big bands, and some bands opened for me in LA at one point. Hyam and and um, uh, I guess there have been a few that kind of opened up. But I think one of the one of the things that really helps when you're when you're an opening artist is that you. Uh, you're like you said, people will throw a piss on you, and you have to learn how to make an audience not want you to get off stage very quickly. And that changes how you write songs, and it changes how you perform songs, it changes how you start making music for the audience as much as you're making for yourself. And even if you're making lyrics that matter to you, finding ways to present it in a way that the audience feels included, it's, it's like being an opening artist is is maybe more important than being a headliner because performing in front of people already like you is kind of easy. But performing in front of people who want to see the next band is is how you become, a, in a way, a better writer. And I think a lot of the people I know in the business that are producers and writers were in opening bands. You know, they weren't all, like, headliner just killing it yeah, their, first, their whole career. First time we did Reading Festival, it was like I, and going to England, which is a, at the time, at least, was a very different style of... Um, engagement and when I saw a hundred thousand people jumping at the same time like I in my mind I immediately I subconsciously clicked I need to write more songs with this jump tempo and so you know without like knowing you know 150 155 I would just write a song I would have a click going and just jump in the room by myself saying I want to write a song to this tempo because I know next time I go there and I think about when I work with rock bands and to kind of, I guess, go back to your the question about rock music. I mean, most of the artists I work with are 
are still their fans are listening to albums, right? You know, whether it's All Time Low or, or or Black Veil Brides or even Five Seconds of Summer. I mean, they're listening to albums, you know. So I'm never really looking at it like the way that most writers I think are trying to say we need to get the single, you know, because most people are digesting music one song at a time these days rather than a collection of songs, you know. But I still in my in my career it doesn't it doesn't work that way, you know. And um and I I agree, man. The first time the, the second show we did with the Sex Pistols was at um in America was at the Bumbershoot in, in Seattle, right? And it was like this DJ had gone out there and it announced, uh, oh, this next band is from LA, Goldfinger. Make sure you don't throw any trash on stage. We've got to keep the stage clear for the Sex Pistols. So, of course, we go out there. There's all these jewel cases that have been given out of CDs, you know, before the show. Every single person started throwing these jewel cases at us, right? And so I got hit in the eye by this this corner of this plastic jewel case, and I was, I was it hurt so bad. I grabbed the DJ out and I said, "Fuck this fucking guy! Fuck his radio station! Throw everything you have at him right now!" And I left the stage, and he just sat out there. And there was probably four feet of trash. By the time like five minutes went by, everyone threw every piece of trash. At him. We went on stage. Played everything, you know, played as hard as we could. Got off stage. Johnny Rotten comes up to me, the singer of the Sex Pistols, is like, you're fucking kicked off the tour, mate. Fuck you. Because we ruined the stage for him, you know? I'm like, his second show of the tour. I'm like, all right, whatever. So our drummer went in their dressing room. They had this massive catering thing. Just took a shit all over their catering. Just like, like pulled down his pants and took a dump all over their catering, right? And I'm like, Darren, I don't know if that's the smartest thing. We just got kicked off the tour. He's like, fuck those guys. And then Steve Jones, a guitar player, comes up, hey man, your drummer just took a dump on our... On our he's like, you guys are back on the tour. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> like, fuck yeah, man. Like, so you never know, man. It's like opening for bands definitely gives you like a... Oh my God. Yeah. I don't know how we keep going. I was going to ask more questions, but I think that that's the good a good way to go out. Um, thank you for doing this, and and you know, it's really cool. This is actually the first time that we've met, and I've been in a lot of sessions. And and about five or six years ago, like I was saying before, I, I was working on the on Joel and Benji Madden's um, album when they did the Madden Brothers, and 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 I remember them just saying, you know, it just the way they talked about you was like it you know you could have been producing the beatles you could have been producing you know the rolling stones like they looked at you as being the greatest producer and i just remember ha hearing them talk about you and throughout my career as a writer and being with a bunch of bands and being in a band and doing all that stuff and and to you know people don't exist in this career for very long if they're dicks. And the fact that all these people call you a friend, it's always like, oh, my friend, Feldy, my friend, Feldy. Like, you've left such a positive impression on so many people. So uh, thanks for being our friend, and thanks for being my friend, and thanks for doing And The Writer Is. Thank you for having me, man. It's awesome. Right. Thanks for listening to this episode of And The Writer Is. If you want to hear music from this songwriter I just interviewed, be sure to check out our Spotify playlist or visit our website at andthewriteris.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to us. You can also like us on Facebook and Twitter. And The Writer Is is produced by Joe London, edited by Miles Bergsma, and published by Big Deal Music. A special thanks to David Silberstein from Mega House Music and Michael White. On next week's episode, we sit down with Emily Warren. Until next time, 
This is Ross Golan. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 